In this episode, I sit down with Jennifer Green. Not only is she an industrial millwright, but she is one of the biggest advocates for skilled trades I've come across. Her work with young women in trades, and furthermore, her work with corporations and organizations on pathways for both people in their, into careers into specific industries, along with particularly women getting into different industries, is pretty immense. We spend time talking about a large array of things, including what it's like to be building mentorship, why she is spending a lot of time focusing her energy into building mentorship, whether she quite understood that from the onset, or it's just something she's doing because it was something that strikes close to her core. Jennifer shares her story of becoming an apprentice, why she made the change in high school to head down the pathway of skill trades, what she's done along the way, and where she's headed to some degree. This young woman has made quite a significant impact in her region, community, province, and across Canada when it comes to skill trades advocacy. Her work with Skills Ontario and the Ambassador Association is new and fresh, along with being innovative, and is picking up tons of steam. She has spearheaded this uh, organization and now leads the Ambassador Program nationally and recently collaborated with representatives from each province at the recent Skills Canada National Competition. This is a excellent episode in my opinion and yes I may be biased but this episode delved into a lot of what made Jen tick and there's a lot of valuable conversation moments and experiences that I hope you uh, really appreciate the opportunity to listen from someone who is giving so much of herself all the time and what she's trying to accomplish so with that I wish you all great listening and look forward to catching up with you on the website if you haven't been there yet www.accidentalapprentice.com is up it's live i'm sure there's always room for improvement so i'm welcome for feedback anytime without any further ado here is jennifer green Another episode of Accidental Apprentice Odd Jobs Explored with your host, Adam Melton. But yeah, nobody told her that she could go somewhere else. Nice. And I was just like, like, and it was literally, it was within five minutes of chatting back and forth of me just doing a monthly checkup on her. And I said, hey, how's it going? Have they signed you yet? Is your boss back from vacation yet? Blah, blah, blah. Like, fill me in. And then she told me about, like, how they offered it and how she turned it down. And I'm like, what? Is it, <laughs> like, is what that, are you doing? <laughs> but that's incredibly terrifying, though, right? That It scares the crap out of me. Because, I mean, like... Uh, how many people out there think they're apprentices and aren't registered? Yeah. Or are Well, she registered? knew that she wasn't an apprentice. Okay. She knew that she wasn't. But the problem was is that she wanted another company so bad for her apprenticeship that she didn't sign with company A because she was waiting for company B because she thought that you could only have one. She didn't realize that I can start here, quit, and go over here and be transferred. 
She had no idea. Jeez. And I'm like, okay. I'm like, obviously your, your co-op teacher is helping you through the process of getting signed. I'm like, this this would have come up. I'm like, why wasn't this told? And then it all and then like it comes back down to the grassroots parts of it's not coming through the curriculum in our schools well enough unless a teacher's actually, I don't want to say a teacher cares enough, but unless it's actually put in place in the curriculum, the students aren't being taught what those things are, right? So that's one of the examples that I use. I said, that may be one very small difference. I said, that, that one very small thing, this might be a stretch, I said, could have changed this girl's life. Uh, just signing, getting signed, and getting her apprenticeship started. What if that, what a company B never came available? And now she's out of high school and she's still not signed. I said, now she's stuck having to try and look, I don't want to say like everyone else, but I mean like the OYAP program is so specialized in getting your foot in the door so easily because companies are already available. Like she already works there. So I mean like what if they decide not to hire after she graduates? I said like everything could change because she's not going to get signed and just get signed. You don't have to stay there. Jeez. Yeah. So I'm like that's a small, it's a very small thing. And I said it only affects one life, but I said it's still one life. Well, I'm going to keep some of that. I'm going to edit that. Oh, you've got this on. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) That that was, as you started going into that, I realized that was going to be a very important mentor story that we'll put in here. So I would say you service is a lot of, you you, you have a lot of skills and capacities, how you offer to a lot of people. You do a lot of different things all at the same time, which is like the true multitasker, the walking Swiss army knife. (laughs) (laughs) I would say that is one of two of my favorite mentoring stories. If we, if we want to talk about that. Yeah, let's go. My other favorite mentor story is a, or I shouldn't say is, was a grade 12 student at a Guelph high school. And she couldn't decide whether she wanted to go for auto body mechanic, welding, or millwright. But in the whole process, I met with her regularly and we'd go out for dinner and we'd do the mentorship thing with questions and answers over a casual dinner. Her biggest problem wasn't that she couldn't choose what she wanted. She excelled in her classes, was already doing like the pre-classes for college. The problem was her parents. Oh. The biggest part of planning with her was not to do school, not how the apprenticeship worked. Don't get me wrong. We still went through all of that. But the number one thing that we had to create a plan for, how to convince her parents. And I find that a lot. Not so much in students that I mentor on a regular basis, but just especially more so for women going into the trades that are at the high school level. How do I convince my parents? So we actually had to put together plans and ideas to the point that I offered to meet her parents, show them my background, what my life was like, that like, it's not necessarily the stereotype that you might think it was. And it certainly wasn't what it was like 10 years ago, 40 years ago, 50 years ago. Holy crap. So I'm with Jen Green and we're going to get into the formalities. I don't expect this to be a standard episode by any means. Hence why we had to book like a room and some space and some time. Um, With that comment regarding stigma, and this is a recent event by the sounds of things, maybe within the past... Year and a half ago. That's recent, okay? Because it's only really lately that popularity starting to maybe hit skilled trades. And I argue that because I really just believe this talked about a lot, but truly isn't changing anyone's mind. So, but... It's a very slow change. Well, this is it. Like, where do you think it is right now? Like, I'm going to be at a sequence, which is going to kill me, but thank goodness for editing. But... I, I firmly believe that our biggest challenge with the skill trade conversation isn't is not it's not youth it's not the I don't care whether it's you see Jamie McMillan and stuff she's doing kick-ass careers doing kindergarten kids they love it they, they it's there you watch them grow up they haven't been they don't have the prejudices and they don't have the discrimination mindset that it's less than it's it's wide open it's the parents 
It really is. And I, I, I'll even give a, a free pass to a lot of guidance counselors and, and teachers and educators because as they get their eyes opened up and explore a little bit deeper, they understand it's a different pathway and it's something for them to learn about and pass on to. I, I firmly believe it's the parents. It's probably the biggest problem. I think when it comes down to it, it's no different than comparing it to technology and grandparents. It's a different generation that grew up with a different idea and the views of what it was at their time. So when they view it with their daughter or their son at this time, they see what they saw when they were at their age, what an apprenticeship or what going into the trades meant when they were a student. So trying to think about that concept when you live in a life or a family that trades has never been in your family. Let's say everybody went to university and for the stereotypical sense, let's say everybody's doctors and lawyers. For your daughter to come home and say, I want to be a plumber, is probably going to be a shocker. So to try and change, it all comes back to trying to change the stereotype and trying to let them know what's out there. One of the biggest things that I say in pretty much every presentation, every keynote that I give is, how can you make an informed decision without having all the answers? So it's all about the education part. Most people have no idea that there's, that there's over 155 registered trades in Ontario, coming down to breaking it down to even the service sector. We all get our hair cut, but you'd be surprised at how many people have no idea that a hairstylist is a trade. It's an actual profession where you have to still get the registered hours and you have to be licensed and you have to write a certificate of qualifications. It comes down just to the knowledge base. My favorite one is horse harness shoemaker. It is a registered trade. I, I admit when I read that for the first time, I was just like, oh, that's, I never would have thought of that. To me, that was just hey, you're a farmer and you specialized in that. But it's never something that I really thought of and realized. So when it comes down to actually seeing how many jobs are an actual trade and that they all go through the same education process, it's just what the, each of the trades are. It comes down to a learning factor. It comes down to a learning basis, which is why I offered to meet with the parents of one of the young women that I mentor to say, hey, this is where I was headed. This is where I ended up going, and this is what I did with my life, and here I am today. This is what I am. This is my parents. This is what they do. This is what I do. And try and just give that overall background of this might not be exactly what you think it is. Hmm. How do you think we got to this stage of stigma? Because you look historically that, go back to the 1800s, 1900s, right? Trades were... How can you put it? Held in high regard. You provided something that built the infrastructure around us. You were integral to moving things forward. When did the gap happen? When did the change happen? Have I, we evolved too far? I think the problem comes down to it's no different than any other stereotype. Once that stereotype is there and it's in people's mind and all it takes is a little bit of convincing and it's really hard to backstep. It's easy to take that one step forward into something new when you have nothing else of information to go against it. And then to try and go backwards to learn something different from what you already knew is hard no matter what the stereotype is. But the gap seems to be continually happening from a long time ago, but still there. So that push for university, it goes right back down to white collar versus blue collar. You see it in movies and in television all the time. That gap right there of the different levels, whether it be in the careers or politics or just general life of living. I always think of the different classes when the, when I think of the Titanic, the different <laughs> the different levels of class, and then thinking about that's how white collar and blue collar saw each other was the same deal when it came down to the levels 
of class. So that, that gap was so huge and the thought process was so different for so long, for so many different for so many different generations. It takes time. I've had my license for 10 years. When I started, only 1% of Millerites were women. Today, it's only 3%. It's barely any increase at all, but at least it's an increase. So to see that happen, it is very slow progress and we will get there. But the more and more that students, parents, generally the public understand what it actually is and what it involves and the fact that I needed more math for my trade than what I needed in the original university path that I was going down. I'm horrible at math, but I wanted that and I had to work hard at it. And math was by far my hardest subject. And it was hard math and I had to take special math for physics and for rigging and all these different types that I never ever would have thought I would have needed for my trade. Okay, so let's, let's get on. There's a couple of things I want to pull out of that, but let's, let's go with, so what, what is your trade? Uh, industrial mechanic millwright. So think of me as a doctor, but for machines. Okay. Most people have no idea what a millwright is. So same thing, it comes down to knowledge base. Right. You hear the word, you know it's a trade, but you don't actually know what they do. And how on God's green earth did you end up there? It's a great story, actually. So in high school, I was advancing my classes to go into forensic criminology. And my co-op teacher, or sorry, my career teacher said in class one day, hey, this is the last day for co-op to sign up. Don't forget to hand in all your paperwork. And I sat there and I was like, well, what's, what's co-op? And he explained it to me and to most high school students, co-op is a half day out of school and it's for classes and for your credits and why wouldn't you want to get out? So I was already taking manufacturing class. I liked it, I was good at it, but never thought of it as a career, even though my dad's a tool and die maker. In that, I used it to get my grades up even higher for my university application. So when it came to an opportunity for co-op, I thought, hey, what the heck, I'll try something to do with my manufacturing class. I sat down in guidance, grabbed my local college's course, by, course guide book and read through all the descriptions and found the one that I thought most suited me, which was Industrial Mechanic Millwright, and I signed up. And I got accepted into co-op, and then I got accepted into the Ontario Youth Apprenticeship Program, and I was registered right away in grade 12. Just like that. And then where did you go from there? You stuck with that? You never... What happened to university? Uh, university in my second semester of grade 11 immediately got turned around. I All the classes that I had signed up for, once uh, I took the co-op in, uh, in grade 11, I dropped all my university courses, switched everything over to be the proper maths that I needed, and physics for my apprenticeship, and I finished taking all of those and then got registered into college as soon as I graduated. So you fell in love right away? Pretty much, yeah. It was it was a lot to learn. So in my manufacturing class in high school, I was in a class or in a high school that was mostly farm kids. So in my class, I was not only was I the only girl, but I was also probably the only person who had no idea what half the things were in the shop. Everybody already like worked on cars with their dads or they grew up on a farm and they drove tractors since they were eight. I had no idea. I didn't even know what a hose clamp was at the time. So everything to me was very green and very fresh. So it was a whole new world for me in learning what all these different things were. One of the things when I was in high school, what made me feel most empowered was once I learned how to use a tool, I knew how to use it. I could do different things with it and what I was capable of doing with those tools. And anything from a hand tool to a power tool to an actual machine, such as a lathe, being able to have control all of, with all of those and being able to make something with them was one of the things that helped 
get me going. And the fact that I could use these not only in a career, but in a life as I grew up. Okay, so you kind of touched on maybe the piece that hooked you was that empowerment of life skills, technical skills that are going to be carried with you. They're not going to go anywhere. They're yours. They're transferable. So you saw a lot of value in growing. The more I speak to you, I've gotten to know you, I, I see that you have a, a real hunger for, for growth and development, whether it's of yourself, of your skills, whatever the case may be. And that, that's kudos to you for that because a lot of people get very comfortable and, and that can be very detrimental. Um, Don't get me wrong. I, I'm scared under the surface, but nobody sees it. Yeah, no, I, I think everyone truly, I think we all are. I think some people get scared to stay exactly the way they are. Some people get, get scared to change, but that's also what drives everybody to keep doing what, what's making them tick. I want to ask you, like you flipped from university to all of a sudden an apprenticeship. Now you're going to do a skill trade. It definitely wasn't on the radar up until the last minute. What was going through your head? Like, how did you feel? Because I mean, the stigmas are, we're, I mean, we're going back 10 years now, right? Well, more than that, technically. So I've had my license since 10 years for 2008. Yeah. But I actually started in 2004. So So 2004 would have been grade 11. 2004, stigma alive and well. Um, university is still premier location and destination for all high school students. Um, yep. You know, what was going through your head? Were you worried about implications, what people were going to think? So my mom was definitely disappointed. She didn't get a chance to go to post-secondary education. So the fact that I was super geared, super ramped, first child, over the moon thrilled. So when I brought this opportunity home, I knew she was disappointed, but I also knew she wasn't going to say no. So she supported me, but I could see the hurt. My father, same thing, wasn't about to say no, but as a tradesperson himself, he knew what I was stepping into and he was very hesitant with it. But at the same time, showing passion and showing the love. And I'm pretty much one of those people that says, if I want to do it, I'm going to do it. Um, I don't like failure whatsoever. And so when I put my mind to something, I don't even like being at medium par, I will be at par or at least the best that I can possibly do or possibly be. So I think in, a, in, in our wedding speech, my father called me a type A personality. So he knew exactly where, uh, where I was going to go if this is what I came home and said. So the support was there and I was excited. And the more that I got into it and definitely being a woman going into a male dominated trade was scary, but I had met just enough amount of people that were, I'm going to use the words cheering me on, that it gave me that sense of ability and empowerment. The amount of people that said like, yes, you, you can do this. Like why, why couldn't you do it? And even my guidance counselor was a little hesitant at first, but without dating people, he was actually at the high school where my dad went when my dad was a student. So he knew my family's background. Like he knew some, like some other people in my family. And it was kind of one of those things where no, I'm, I'm doing this. I need your help. So you help me or, or don't help me. I'm doing it either way. Um, so I slowly started to gain more and more support. But as that woman in that male-dominated or going into the male-dominated trade, I stuck out like a sore thumb. And so the fact that I was already university-based and I already did public speaking kind of put me in the limelight to go a little bit further. And that's actually how I got started with skills. Not when I competed years, years later, it was actually when I was still in high school because I stuck out like that sort of thumb. The fact that I made that huge jump, that huge change, and the fact that I was a woman going into that trade, and the fact that I was one of the first women signed up in the OEAP for our district. 
And that's where Skills Ontario actually picked me up for the first time to do a keynote speech at one of their young women's conferences. So getting more and more experiences like those, they just kind of started snowballing. And it came into the effect where I always said yes, because I knew that one experience was going to keep leading into another and into another and into another. And we're going to get into those experiences, because your experiences are huge. Um, and they're very impactful. And your advocacy is second to none. But let me ask you this question, because we run across this a lot. Initially, you talked about having cheerleaders. You talked about how uh, when you first started getting there, there was a bit of a, not maybe a support squad, but it certainly wasn't a, a group of people that were trying to push you any other which way. Yeah, you're a driven person, and I can only imagine how driven you were then. What would have happened? What do you think would have happened? And maybe you haven't reflected on that, but what would have happened if you actually had people who turn around and tried to outline the negativeness or the negative pieces that could have happened and, and how maybe it wasn't a fit for you? You were just excited because you could conquer it quickly. I think one of the things that I really had stuck in my mind was that my grades for those classes already proved I was good enough to be there. So don't get me wrong, there were still people who outlined the negative things and or for lack of a term tried to pre-warn me of things that could happen. Um, so that was there. If someone had really truly pushed hard and against, admittedly, I'm not sure, excuse me, where I would have gone. I mean, like I said, like I know what I want and I go for it. But in grade 11, if someone had really pushed that hard, I, I admit to like, at this day, I don't know what I would have done if I'd had someone really push hard to stay for university because it didn't happen. So I don't think it really crossed my mind too much. I bring it up because I think we come across, and especially with all the outreach and advocacy you do, particularly women in trades, I would have to, even our opening segment we had there was talking about conquering parents in some capacity. I think that's a major problem, half the reason of why I do this, is that there are people willing to push their perspectives on others, right? And I wonder how many wonderfully talented people that could blossom the world of skilled trades. I mean, I'll use that as a reference for you. You, you talk about coming into the skilled trades at a very rapid pace. You came in and you, you put a spotlight on things and you were able to help talk about a conversation that a lot of people weren't talking about and help early process that now is a very common conversation about trying to get unrepresented groups or women or my, uh, minorities or Aboriginal, anyone, the, the groups that are just not getting opportunities or haven't had opportunities. So you were probably a really big start early on with that. I think that's one of the things where I push mentorship so much and is where one of my goals are headed for the Skills Ontario Alumni Association is that I didn't have any mentors in my apprenticeship there were barely any women's program in trades. There was no one for me to talk to, no one for me to go to. And I find more and more I'm continually saying, that wasn't there when I started. Or like when I see all these different kind of conferences and grants and mentorships and all these different kinds of things, I'm like, that wasn't there. And I'm like, 10 years is a short time, but 10 years is a long time at the same time. And what I wouldn't have given to have that, I didn't have a mentor until my second year of apprenticeship. It wasn't a woman and that doesn't matter but they are also one of the people that helped save me to keep going my problem wasn't when i started my apprenticeship in high school my problem was once i got into my apprenticeship and having somebody that i could really bounce ideas off of and really talk to is someone that saved me is what really helped me get through a lot of really hard times and that's where i see where a lot of people more and more especially when talking about the ideas of parents is that if a mentor is there to be able to ask questions to someone to find 
whether it be the nitty gritty or the tips and tricks of the trade or what did you do? It's one thing, if, if you had someone coming after you about, no, the push for university is the way that you should go and you mentioned their views onto another person, having a mentor with you to help pitch the other side of why you should go into the trades. If you're brand new, fresh and green, and let's say high school, your knowledge is going to be very green of what the trades are. You know you want to go there, but you don't know enough about it to be able to fight a battle against somebody else whose views are, let's say, for university. You need somebody else to help fight that battle who has the background, who has the knowledge, which would be a mentor. So having somebody on your side for that would be great in helping pick that side for your opinion. So aside from mentors, apprenticeship isn't really a defined form of training. There's, there's in-class, in right? There's in-class training, you know, that consists of however many weeks, whatever set curriculum, all trades have that. But there's the thousands of hours that exist in the field that I think all trades have maybe some checklist, maybe a logbook, but to what capacity that really exists and how it functions is a, is a debate we can have with every trade. What do you think needs to be done to help strengthen that apprenticeship style system, the hours in the field? What, what could be done? hundred percent to me and this is only from my own personal experience and again we're going back that decade but what I learned most was that you've got the ten percent of schooling and then you've got the ninety percent of hands-on work which is your hours so for Millwright I needed eight thousand hours of hands-on work and then that checklist you talked about is your CFQ book so everything in that book has to be signed off to say that yes you are competent enough to go and write that CFQ but what a lot of people don't realize or don't think or what they didn't think then and what I actually am hearing more and more from apprentices now is that you do all this learning in school, but that's not necessarily what the book is asking for. The book is asking for what you're learning on the job. So there'll be things in that book that I learned that I didn't learn in school, that I had to learn from like things in the job or specifics in the job. And that having more focus or more training programs about the items that are in that certificate of qualifications book that you have to get signed off on was one of the reasons why I found a lot of my uh, a lot of my friends or classmates or other members of other trades were failing the, the CFQ on the first try was that that the test is based off of the book and the book isn't based off of school the school the book is based off of the hands-on learning so having more training opportunities from the actual sign-off book would be beneficial that's a necessary improvement I think with everybody and maybe to be more specific with the evolution of those sign-offs and the skills because they're constantly changing nah. the review of those skills always trying to drive me a little crazy because you'll see things that are written in there under the not scope of practice but under those training standards or the skills to be learned and they've been written there for 35 years and it hasn't been practiced for 32 yeah and it's still in there yeah one of the other things that I wasn't fond of was I did some learning in school on turbines, very small portion, but not many companies have turbines. That's the other problem is that you've got this book, which has everything in it and you have to have it all signed off to write. But in that whole section of turbines, in all the factories I was in, none of them had turbines. How am I supposed to gain and get this signed off when I have no turbines? So then you run into that factor where there are aspects in the book that the company that you're with may not have anything to do with some of the things that you need to get signed off on the book. And then you're just kind of like, Oh. Well, what about the, uh, there are some, some people who theorize that maybe the apprenticeship system in Ontario should maybe be flipped on its head and that the apprentices are not, they're employed and they're paid, but they're not 
um, how can you put it, owned or operated by single employer entities, that they actually have to travel with the scope of work. That they move around to chase the work and they're not employed by a single outfit, so they have the full skill set. Then they seek employment at the end of their apprenticeship. So I agree and I disagree. (laughs) I agree on the fact that sounds awesome for learning to get the most well-rounded experience and opportunities to make you the best mechanic that you could be using mechanic as an example. But in my personal life, I don't want to do that. I don't want to be jumping around. I like stability. Um, I like to know like where I am and what I'm doing and what's going to happen. No, granted, don't get me wrong. In a millwright, you never know what's going to happen every day. It changes every day. But I don't, personally, I don't like the idea of constantly jumping around, especially when I was at the age for my apprenticeship. Most apprentices, the average age is 27, but I started when I was 17, 18. So for me to be jumping around for three years in, I'm going to call it my drinking age, (laughs) I didn't really (laughs) want to be jumping around too much. I liked being within the scope of my city. I jumped around from like plant to plant but all within one city. So I still had the opportunity to stay close to family and stay close to friends. Now, granted, there's lots of other people or lots of um, other my friends who like had no problem. I had one friend who was like, yep, see, I'm going to Alberta. I'm going to the oil fields because he knew that he, for what he wanted, that was the best opportunity for him to learn. And he had no problem up and leaving. I didn't want to. <laughs> as, a, as a public speaker, as a motivator, as a keynote person, you, you give a lot of uh, your time to speak on behalf of skill trade advocacy, opportunity, leadership, mentoring, particularly uh, to young women, but just people in general, really. You don't really specify too deeply. I know you're probably tapped into a lot because you're a young woman who went into the trades at a very quick age. And with a big 180, I can see all the uh, poster child. I, I can see them decorating the posters with you on them before you even signed up your Ontario Youth Apprenticeship contract. Why? Why why advocate? Why go out there and put yourself out there like that? I mean, you could focus on your own career and not have to do that at all. I found it elevated my career. That's on a personal note. But at the same time, it goes right back to what I said about none of that was there when I started. And it was a very unpleasant feeling not having a place to turn. And being able to not necessarily create something new, but to be able to create something that's available. The fact that at the time when I started, it was a local resource. And I mean very local. It took a long time to build up to doing things provincially and to do things nationally. But to give that opportunity there, whether it was local or to one student or to one school, it just kept building and building. And the more things I did, the more opportunities arose and the more I was asked to do things and brought in my spectrum. So I may have all these technical aspects and learning opportunities of my trade, but at the same time, the more I did outside of my trade in the advocacy and in the workshops I did and the keynotes and so on and so on and so on, I gained other skills. I gained being a better public speaker. I gained being able to present my knowledge and background onto others, whether it be students or partners or companies. I've done presentations for companies on how to do the strategic planning on bringing more women into the workforce, into the trades. And I mean for large, large companies. I've done it for that. I've done presentations on 
embracing changing your career. How many times do you change a job in your career? What's a job versus a career? How many careers do you change? Where is it that your life takes you? I started in university and then I jumped to mill writing and then I've jumped to maintenance planner scheduler, but I'm also a president of an association. I'm also now the lead of a committee and I've now developed into all these different things where they say you have an average of seven careers in a lifetime. Well, at 31, how many am I already at? Am I at four? Am I at five? So I have all these different aspects from volunteer work to my career where they bounce off of each other, where one side was my trade of my technical ability, where the presenting and the keynotes started getting me out there more publicly and being able to offer them to others, I started realizing was a difference. Do you, it, do you think that your pathway through the skill trades actually provided, or do you think a pathway through the skill trades actually has more opportunity to diversify and grow than maybe the traditional pathways through post-secondary? I mean, you're far enough along now at 31, you know, I'm 36 and I look back at my friends and colleagues and those who've done post-secondary education and their pathways in that. And I look at the world of opportunity that skill trades is beset and where I can come and go. Do you think there's more? actually going down the trade path and people I mean there's definitely more than people think that's first of all we can get that out of the way but do you think there's more that way than those that maybe have taken a post-secondary I find that it gave me a lot more opportunities in the early stages than I had over friends let's say who did other post-secondary options where the age I was able to buy a car and the age I was able to buy a house and then have things paid off and the amount of things I was able to do ahead of others it wasn't just like it wasn't by a couple months it was by like years and years of how quickly I was able to do things faster in any job to elevate your career you can always go on to supervisor or management there's always the general pass but I, what I like with the trades is that there's so many different avenues, whether it's going up in the exact leadership role of your trade, whether it be to a foreman and then a supervisor and then a manager. But then you've also got, I like to call them the sideway paths where potentially you could be an estimator or you could go my way. You could be a maintenance planner scheduler or you could go to a different industry altogether. My favorite one for mill writing is a machine is a machine. doesn't matter where you are. doesn't matter if this machine makes cookies or it makes pharmaceuticals, or it makes auto parts, or it's a roller coaster. A roller coaster is still technically a machine. That would be a pretty cool industry to work at if you worked at Canada's Wonderland. <coughs> so the fact that a trade can take you in so many various aspects, in a keynote speech that I gave just last week, one of the things that I mentioned was that never in a million years that I think that my trade was going to lead me where it has through Skills Canada and Skills Ontario with my volunteer work. Never in a million years did I expect to be a president of an association. I never ever expected to be the national lead of a national committee. I didn't think that my trade was going to lead me to those, but it was my trade background and my love of planning that got combined into one that led me into those different aspects, but I never would have thought of that. And those are aspects that I wouldn't even generally associate with just a trade in general from a jumping point, but it's where my trade has led me. So I kind of have, I have, I have one career right now, but I have all these different aspects that I do on the side that my trade has led me to, but they bounce off of each other. So I have, I have, I'll call it management experience through these jobs with Skills Ontario and Skills Canada, 
which those skills then bounce back to my job. And my planning in my job then bounces back to those. And the two of them bounce back on each other and makes both of them better and better at every day. But did I think that my trade was going to take me there? No, but it's certainly many different avenues that I wouldn't have thought about or most people probably wouldn't have thought about before. And there's lots more avenues. Those are just my own personal ones. Well, let's pick up with that step forward now. So let's... The, the the pathways and the the adventures that you're into now in terms of skills Ontario skills Canada the alumni association I mean I know the list is, list is longer than that but we'll catch on to that in particular I want to talk about your advocacy for uh, women in trades I know that's um it's a very popular conversation it has it's 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 founded it's needed it definitely needs to be done I praise you for doing it What's the biggest challenge you've accomplished? How or the biggest challenge you face so far doing it? Because I don't necessarily feel like it's always well well received. I find it comes right back down to something that I already said that the information just simply isn't known. It's still maybe a stereotype or they don't realize that these certain jobs are trades or they don't even know that these certain jobs exist. And it comes down to the example that I mentioned earlier. I say I'm a millwright. And if someone knows what that is, they used to always just kind of be like, huh, yeah, okay. And they'd kind of laugh at me. I find more so today, they're like, wow, that's great. Really? You're, that's, that's really good to hear. Or I'll get the, oh, okay. And I can tell that they don't know. But it comes down to, it's a title. They might know the title, but they have no idea what that title does. So just having that one piece of information to explain what a millwright actually is might just be that little bit of empowerment that someone needs to make a decision. So going back to Jamie McMillan, the fact that she does all these great presentations to so many different levels of kids, it's that piece of information that's needed on exactly what it is that these trades do. Everybody knows what a lawyer does and a doctor does and the, I'm going to call them the easy ones of, it's pretty obvious of what a car mechanic does and what an electrician does, but then how many different types of electricians are there? It's that kind of information to get it out there. Maybe someone loves the idea of going into a higher spectrum, or maybe they like the idea of going into residential. There's so many different types of electricians that most people don't realize. So just getting out that general information of what it is that these jobs actually do is what's going to help change, not just for women, don't get me wrong, but in general for youth and even there's adults that I've mentored where same thing like they're like this is something that I'm thinking of doing so just getting that information out there that might not have been there before communication is going to be key to the whole thing and hopefully it's the same or similar message that's something that uh, I've spoken to a few times now is that a lot of people have a lot to say about skilled trades now but when you start listening what everybody has to say you start realizing that they're not informed themselves and so the messaging gets very muddled confusing and once it gets confusing the parents and the kids are out they're done Mm -hmm. because they realize the person talking to them is maybe reading off a cue card or i love when i go to events and listen to someone try to read off the entire oap sheet of all like 150 trades stop stop reading just go by sector like just do something simplistic at that point photocopies every kid gets one (laughs) yeah yeah And, and start asking the questions from there right um so you formed you're the president of the Skills Ontario Alumni Association. Correct. And I should know that because I'm a member of it. Um, <laughs> nice. We'll have to get into another day of how I ended up there. But um, what's your hope for the group? 
I, I never told you this was going to be easy. I know. I'm thinking I should have prepared more. No, it's way better this way. Ah, I know. Um, my hope for the groups right now, it's brand new. Yep. My hope is what can I, what can we bring to the table? Ultimate goal is I want to be able to give back to the competitors that competed in Skills Ontario. How can I positively affect their career or their life? But at the same time, how can they do the same back to the organization? So coming back full round circle of you competed, you're now an alumni. How can the association and Skills Ontario give back to you to keep helping you in your career? But how can you help give back to them? So some simple things are your podcast, for example. You're starting it out and being a skills ambassador at the provincials. I was like, hey, how many podcasts do you really want to do while you're here? Hey, here's six people. I was able to help give back to you in saying like, here's six awesome people. They're alumni. They're all tradespeople. Boom. Here's some people for your podcast. At the same time, you donated your time back to me and you did some judging. So it comes back full round, full circle. I want to be able to take it further in going into the mentorship, being able to do the networking portion between alumni, being able to do the networking portion between people who are about to compete to the alumni. How can they learn from each other, whether it's a mentoring type thing or it's an actual question. Our alumni are the tradespeople of today. How can they help teach the tradespeople of tomorrow? What skills and opportunity and tips and tricks of the trade can they pass down to somebody else to help make them the best that they can be so that we have the best skill workforce that we can have for Ontario? How can they give back to each other? How can they bounce off to each other? And the more that alumni are able to give back to the organization, the organization in turn is able to now offer more back to the competitors and to the public and to the alumni themselves. You're really adding another dimension to an apprentice and to a journey person or mechanic or whatever their title is. You're really delving into the world of training mentors here. I'm, I'm just looking on the outside and the perspective of it, and it's desperately needed in my opinion because I think I look at a, a couple of generations of trades folk out there, and there are some exceptional uh, journey persons and mechanics that take an affinity to teaching, take an affinity to putting you under their wing and doing whatever they can to help you be a better tradesperson. But I don't think they're the dominant species out there. I don't think they're the majority. I think they're rare. Some cases they also get caught up in situations where I think they're stuck running jobs, they're supervising or the foreman or their management, and they don't have the time they used to have in the way the, the world of trades and construction and, and service and industry have all changed. They don't have the time allocated the way it used to be. I did have a couple of really good mentors and in different categories, I'll say. I had a mentor for my trade that I desperately needed and they noticed that I needed somebody and they stepped in. But then I've had other mentors or not necessarily mentors, but huge supporters that really stepped up and said, hey, I've noticed such and such, or I think you'd be really good at such and such. And it was just that little level of praise that made me kind of think, oh, you think I'm capable of that? Oh, well, if you think I'm capable of that, then others might think that. And if you think that, and I'm that type of person that's gonna go get something, if I got the idea in my mind, then I'm gonna go do it. <laughs> the power of positivity, right? That's exactly, cool. which to me I find has been a huge influence in my life having someone 
be positive or just tell me that they think I'm doing a good job and it's going in the right direction. It's a really good force to help me step one step further. There's a lot of times where I'm just, I admit, I'm a procrastinator. As much as I'm a planner, I am a procrastinator to the finest. But I work well under pressure and I work well under stress. And having that come to me, especially if it's something that I am procrastinating at, knowing and remembering that small amount of positivity, I'm like, okay, I can do this. I'm like, whether it's really hard or it's really easy, I'm just procrastinating. I can do this. It's going to go on and go forward. But having those people along the way who are really big stepping stones really helped me get forward and get moving. It was somebody, so I had the person for my trade, but there was two key people who had nominated me for awards and reading what they wrote about me from their own personal thoughts made me really say to myself, wow, I didn't, I didn't realize people saw me like this. And it was quite an eye opener and a refresher to see that what I was doing made that much of a positive impact that these people thought this way of me and to read that was really empowering and to have them as a supporter of me and keep helping me push forward and bring ideas to me and the same thing as like what you said to me today hey Jen I saw this opportunity and I thought of you and like it's just it's just one more step to make you think like Ooh, that's a good direction or that could be a direction or if it's a project and be like hey I thought of you because I think that you're capable of this for a project to have just that little bit of empowerment that someone believes in you and they think that you can do it makes you realize maybe I can do this maybe I can go on maybe I can keep going whether it's I'm already in it and whether I was procrastinating or I didn't know if I could do it or I hadn't even been thinking about it in the first place just having that seed planted and thinking of a different direction that you can go in to me is a big step it's positivity wow it's amazing this is the least amount of talking I've had to do on an episode I, I talk a lot I love this by the way this is exactly <laughs> this is I have the game has been stepped up let's put it that way it's great. Well, I feel like I should actually apologize because no. I, I do I do talk people, a lot and I know it. People, Ask my boss. They're going to hear from me <laughs> enough as it is. Um, I'm trying to keep the train flowing in the right direction here. So I, I'm going to steal a question from Tim, Fer- Tim Ferriss. Okay. So he uses this one a few times in his early years, and I actually really like it. So not counting Elon Musk, not counting Steve Jobs, and not counting your parents. When I say success, who do you think of? Wow, putting on the spot. I think of people in success in many different levels. I'm going to go back to that mentor I had in my apprenticeship. I saw him as an extremely successful man. Not only in his trade and his career, But really, one of the things that positively affected me when watching him was the kind of family man that he was. The fact that not only was he successful in his career, and he was doing what he loved, and he was happy, but he also had great friends and a wonderful family atmosphere to the point that not only did he take me under his wing in the workplace, but I was invited to family functions. 
and I really got to see a different aspect of a coworker and somebody else's life as an apprentice as a between the ages of 18 and 21 it was someone that I aspired to be like seeing how successful and how well-rounded he was and what he had done in his overall life not just his career I also see successful people around me in the values that I believe in. They may be an executive director, but it's not just the position that they're in. It's the projects that they've worked on and what they've put forward and the goals and ambitions that they've had and the passion that they've had that make me see them as successful. The fact that they have so many ideas going forward that they don't have enough time to put them all together and all of them are great. To me, that shows success. Whether it takes a long time to put it together or a short time to get put it together, whether it makes a big difference or a little difference, they're ideas that are positive thinking and going in the right direction to make a difference. And to me, those are some of the things that make success. Now, I didn't really answer your question with specific names because I didn't want to put people's names out there without their permission, but... No, I didn't think you would. I didn't think most people wouldn't wouldn't probably name someone unless it was like a figurehead or something, but uh, that's okay. That's I had an expectation it wouldn't be a name. So. Wasn't sure. <laughs> no, it's okay. It's okay. It's really good. It was a beautiful answer. Um, so how important do you think it is to do something you love as a career or... or are you maybe looking at the idea that you can really just do anything and live your life outside of work? Do you think there's an opportunity to separate the two? Or in today's society, do you think we've just muddled it so much? I think in my personal situation, I want to do what I love, but then there's also a balancing act. So let's say I was on my own and I was single. I want to go out and do whatever I want. I want to move to wherever I want. Awesome. I love making that difference and finding the connections and finding the different paths and avenues, but I only have to worry about myself and I can pick up and I can go. But I do have a family, so then I also now have to think about them. And if I'm moving towards something that I love, I also have to think how it's going to affect them. But then also when you think about society, a conversation that my husband and I had just the other day was regarding pension. And how different pension has changed in the past 10 years, 30 years, 50 years, and how it looks on society. And even thinking about my husband's example was the the cost of a loaf of bread then and now, and how costs in our lives have changed versus costs in our wages, and how different things such as that has influxed. And it's no longer an idea of, can I really do just what it is that I love? Or am I going to have to think about every other thing that comes with it? And nine times out of ten, it's every other thing that comes with it. I can't just pick up and go and do what I want or what I love. I have to think about all these different aspects. How it's going to affect my future. How it's going to affect my family. How it's going to affect in costing. How is it going to affect my job or my living lifestyle? I live on a property now that I love and it's semi-large. And if I moved to somewhere else, to a job that I love, I know that I could never, ever have a nice big property with a field behind my house. I know that I'd be living in this tiny little probably townhouse and that's gonna change. Would I be working somewhere where I love? Yes, would I be living somewhere where I love? No. So there's a lot of different aspects that come with it, not just what society puts on it. And the reason I throw that out there is that this really popular phrase right now, right? Like do what you love. And I worry that that is providing some really mixed messaging to people 
that if they love what they do, it's all going to work out in the end. I think you can grow to love anything you do if you, if you find a way to be passionate in there. You've, what you've shared with me today here has been amazing. You've gone depth into how you've taken something that was completely unconventional. You turned your own path on its head. And along the way, you found the positivity that not only was shown to you, but the positivity you discovered along the way. You've shared it. You've turned it into that. No one would have told you in grade 9 or 10 that to be an industrial millwright would provide you an opportunity to impact people. They would never would have pieced that together. And you had two choices. You could have done a couple different things with it. You could have just done your trade and moved along. You could have done your trade for a little while, got decided this wasn't enough, and went on to university. Instead, you took every piece out of it and moved it forward. And you should be commended for that. You need to understand that. And I know you do, because yeah. we've talked. You do, understand, you do understand that it's a piece of giving back, and, and you, you don't hold it with a selfish regard. Well, jumping kind of backwards to something that you asked me earlier about the differences between where my trade or my apprenticeship could take me versus post-secondary and jumping into this conversation that we're having now. I was offered a teaching position in a high school only five years after my uh, getting my license. And at the same time, uh, I was also working as a co-op and an OEP advisor while still doing my... Uh, job as a licensed person but because I work shift work I had all this free time so I picked up a second job and during the recession obviously the auto industry got hit pretty hard and so I picked up another job and I was actually a hostess at Eastside Mario's so again like those are all different paths that I certainly didn't take and what I love about it is that there's been so many different avenues of when I was a grade 9 or 10 student as you just mentioned would I have ever thought any of this no definitely not but I mean I also never would have thought that being a waitress, or sorry, being a hostess at a restaurant was going to be coming from my trade, but the only reason I did that was because of the recession. And I did that to try and bring up my wages to come down to rent. But at the same time, nobody was really hiring though. So how did I get the job? I got the job because of my background, because of what I had shown by being an apprentice and being a competent employee that they're like, sure, you want to be a hostess? Sure, no problem at all. But I loved the job. It was it was fun and it was, I don't want to say easy, but it was relaxing outside of my day-to-day work. But I mean, those are all different avenues that I went, but they all gave me different skills and different job aspects and different ideas and thinking that all brought back to my career and my job. So, you, I mean... Those are some cool experiences I didn't know you had. I didn't know what the hostess piece. Nobody really so, knows that part. <laughs> I, I, I wait a table, so I know what that's like. Um, but yeah, with, I'm, with, a, I'm a licensed millwright, and I'm working part-time as a hostess. So with your crazy journey, because you seem to have had a bit of one as well, do you think we have a situation right now with too much pressure being put on making lifelong decisions at early ages? If I feel like there's a lot of pressure that these uh, today's youth, whether they're in grade seven, eight, all the way, it, it, the conversation's happening earlier and earlier. Do you think there's a sense of pressure that's coming with this? They got to make the right choice. I felt that way, and that was 2004, 2005 for when I graduated. So if I felt that pressure then, I certainly believe that students would feel it now. And I think one of the problems or one of the points that don't get passed along is that. Your goal is to pick a career and go to post-secondary education for that career. But it's those next steps of everything that I just talked about of how many different avenues that career has taken me or could have taken me in a better sense in that 
you don't have to stay in that forever. Just because you choose to do this and go to school for this, you can always go back to school or you can take another class or look at all the different avenues that I've gone down and I haven't gone back to post-secondary education. I've taken classes here and there and I have done different courses, but I haven't gone back and done a, a three-year program or anything. But there's so many different paths that I've had the opportunity to go down and do. But a lot of students are thinking that I'm going to school for this. This is what I'm doing. Shoot, now it scares me. What if I change my mind? What if in 10 years I don't like it? It's that what if next... in five years it's not there? Exactly, yeah. So that next step in evolution of information, of letting them know of all the different kinds of paths that it could take you is another option to allowing them to know... It's all right. Yeah. Yeah, that it's all right. You know, we look at, you know, respectively 31, 36 here at the table, and I think it's fair to say we both don't have it figured out quite yet. No, I find the older I get, the more I know exactly what I want or where I want to go. And coming from something that you and I spoke before we started recording was those goals. I have goals. I have goals on different levels, but they're always changing. And the fine points aren't always there because every day brings new opportunities. It might be just one connection on LinkedIn or one conversation I have or a podcast I hear or just listening to the radio or seeing something on Twitter. Like, who knows? It could be anything that makes me think, hmm, and I could change those goals and I could continue on. And my career path is ever evolving. Where can I make the biggest change? Where can I make the best difference in the most efficient and effective way and that's the goal that I have not necessarily a career path but that's my overall goal and what different careers can I find that's going to get me to that career path what a fantastic message to share about being goal driven goal orientated that's developed over time you didn't have that goal when you were 16 no (laughs) that goal was developed over time and something I really hope that gets taken out of these conversations I'm fortunate to have with folks like yourself is that people understand it's going to evolve, it's going to change. And quite frankly, I really don't believe you ever figure it out to the day you retire, and then you probably can look back with clarity on maybe what you wish you would have done differently. Yeah. Instead of that mentality of regret, you know, something I really try to advocate on behalf of along, along the way in, in sharing a lot of these conversations is that to, to give everything a shot, especially in your younger years, that whole like 17 to 27, 28 range, go mess up. Go screw it up. I mean, for all intents and purposes, you could have went through to become an industrial millwright, got your license and your certification, went, this sucks. It never did a day in it. Yeah. But it still would have served as a learning path. It still would have served as a way to, to, as many of your experiences came out of that, you could have left and not done anything with that world probably at some point. And in fact, you may still will. Who knows? You're still touched in there right now. Who knows where the world takes you? You're 31 years old. Like (laughs) As people tell me when I'm 36, they laugh and they call me a pup because there's so much still to come. And when we look at people at the age of uh, 15 to 20, I really like to share the message, even at 25, it's okay that you don't know. It's okay that it's not working out. It's okay that it's gonna change. Enjoy it, embrace it, go all in, don't hesitate. You can always change your mind. Exactly. Here's a good one for you. Don't let fear and hesitancy, oh, how do I word that? How does it go again? Fear and hesitancy are an illusion. Don't let them or anything else stop you. Well done. Took, took me a second try there, but I got it. <laughs> okay, so you are a firecracker and a half. I think I'm more like a firework display, quite frankly. So 
where the hell does all this come from? Where is your inspiration? It just keeps building. My, uh, so my, my, my husband's a tradesperson as well. So he understood some of the difficulties that I had gone through. And as every day passed, I saw different opportunities. And with those opportunities, when something was presented to me, I never said no. I always said yes, because it was something new. It was a new experience. And you never know where it's going to take you. If I hadn't have said yes all those years ago to all those different little things, I definitely wouldn't be where I am today because I never would have taken that step. I never would have taken that journey of saying yes, whether it was a small speech or a small mentoring gig or a workshop or a presentation. I just always said yes because it you never knew where it was going to go or where it was going to take you or what was going to happen. And I don't remember your initial question now. <laughs> you, you covered it. You covered it. And I'm, gonna, I'm only going to ask you one more thing. Um, Shoot. Out of this path, this adventure, what's, what's, if you could caps, capstone it with uh, one of your favorite experiences along the way? Okay, and I, I mean, I'm asking a lot of you because you have so many stories you have shared with me uh, over the time I've gotten to know you. And there are, I can pick probably three or four that you've told me. But do you feel like there's one that, resonates in your mind and it's kind of a go-to that you share when you're speaking with maybe people that are interested or hesitant or I think one of my favorites of course revolves around skills Ontario again but in my first year of my apprenticeship I thought I had made the worst decision I failed my midterm everybody was Basically, like, you can do this, you're going to do great, you are, like, this is the right path for you, and then I failed. And I was mortified. I had never failed an exam before in my life. I was an A-plus student, and to fail an exam, I didn't know what to do. And I was mortified. I was devastated. And I thought, what am I going to do? I have made the worst decision. I'm freaking out. Took lots of calming down, lots of people to talk to, lots more studying. And then I passed my first year, and I was like, okay, I'm okay. I'm, I'm, I'm getting there. Second year is when I got my mentor. Things got a lot better. Situations got figured out. And I was on the right path. Okay, I'm good again. I'm working on it. Year three, Conestoga College asked me to represent them to compete in the Skills Ontario competition. I laughed and said no. I'm like, are you out of your mind? And I was scared. I was afraid. I had beaten myself down in the fact that I'm, I'm getting through. I'm doing okay. I'm just in the corner, doing my own thing, I'm getting there. Don't get me wrong, still advocating for the trades and women in the trades and skills gap and age gap and gender gap and the whole thing. But I'm getting myself through. And it comes down to my college professor who said to me, I wouldn't have asked you if I didn't think that you couldn't do it. I asked you for a reason. I chose you to represent the college to compete because I believe in you. I was scared that I couldn't do it. I was scared of the stereotype of women in the trades. And it was something that not only did I not want to knock the stereotype down further if I came in last place, but I certainly didn't want to knock myself down even further. My first year and my second year were kind of rocky and I was back in a happy place and I was doing good. But the fact that he said that to me was kind of an eye opener and it comes back to that positivity when I said that 
someone saw something in me that I didn't see. And so having that said to you, to me was big. I still said no to him at first, <laughs> but I ended up making a deal with him. After talking to family and friends and coworkers, my mentor, I said to the teachers at Conestoga, I'll make a deal with you. If you help me make me feel confident in myself, if you help prepare me for this competition, then I'll compete. So of course they all said yes. <laughs> and then I ended up come, been coming into school quite a bit after that. And it's what really helped really get me on more of the path that I'm on. Because once I was in that competition and ended up winning gold for provincials and then silver for nationals, and by no means am I tooting a horn or anything here, but it was instant respect. Hearing that I made it that far and that I actually made it I was no longer having to prove myself. I was no longer having to stand up for myself. People in my company or around me knew that I had gone through it and I had made it. And it was instant respect. And it was almost like a sigh of relief. So definitely having that positivity in your life to help give you that boost for someone else to see something in you that you didn't necessarily see before or just have an idea that I think you'd be really good at this. And it's not something that you had already thought of before. Definitely to me is a factor to help push you to where you need or should be in your career. I was hoping that was going to be the story. Ah! That took a shot in the dark, <laughs> hoping that was the one. You shared that one with me before and uh, it took me back. Uh, I was just, I love it. And I think I will hook you for one more. Go for it. I got time. We need to close with something, and I don't have a closer, but I think I've got one. <laughs> I, I think I, I think I can fish a little just right. So you're you're sought after nationally and provincially to speak. You have, as the listeners have tuned through this this podcast, you have such amazing things to share. Your stories have been unreal. Uh, your positiveness shines through. Your advocacy, you can hear it in almost everything you're touching on. So here's the hard part for you. Is that and uh, and your faces are fantastic. I you know you're lucky you're lucky because I'm in the middle right now of going through a process where this might end up being a YouTube channel. Uh, I've been approached to do that, so you're lucky. Because you you may have been one. You may See, you may I, still be someday. I don't I don't know if I'd be making the faces as much if this was on video. Oh. It's much easier to do a podcast than it is to do a video. I've hung off on stuff and waiting and holding it on on you. So a short message, something you've got you've got a moment, you've got some ears. And, uh, you know, what are you going to say to, to today's youth or, or to, to the lost worker, to the university graduate who has no idea what to do now, took a program that doesn't even exist? You know, anyone that's just kind of in that spot, they don't know where to go next or what to do next. Well, what would you share with them? Ask more questions. Always ask more questions. They teach you in high school. There's never a stupid question. And there really isn't. And you find that as you grow up, that it might seem silly, but they ask the question for a legit reason. Maybe they don't understand or they don't know it. As a teenager, you're sitting there, if you know the answer, and you're like, you're like, that was dumb. But as you get older, you realize it's not that it's a dumb question. It's a different learning process for someone else than your own. Asking more questions gains you more answers, which comes right back to my favorite saying of, how can you make an informed decision if you don't have all the answers? 
from the examples that you gave as the people that I would give this advice to is if you're looking for that path or you're looking for something, ask the question. If you don't know it's out there, do the research. Google is like man's best friend today. I don't know what I would have done with like without Google kind of deal. I use Google on how to spell words. <laughs> we all do. I know. It's great. So being able to just type something in to learn about somebody or to learn about something or to look something up or an address. I mean, anything. It's a question. If you type in an address into Google Maps to figure out where it is, that's a question. You're trying to figure out the answer. The more that you learn, the more informed you're going to be, which gives you the better opportunity to have more skills under your tool belt to offer yourself and to offer others. Tool belt, of course, being the best metaphor here. But it gives you that opportunity to learn and get the answers that you need. And if you don't know what questions to ask, find somebody who can help ask the right questions or can help guide you in the right direction. Whether you just sit there and you listen while that person just talks your ear off, you're going to learn a lot of information, but it's probably going to get you to ask questions because you're not going to have questions about all the things that they said. So asking questions gives you that opportunity to learn in the best manner possible. Whether you know the questions you want to ask or you need to figure out what kind of questions to ask, that's how you're going to find your way. Nice. Well done. I was expecting nothing, actually. I had no expectations. I didn't know what you were going to say. <laughs> I had to think about it. I had to come up with a... You'll hear me say that a lot is ask questions. It doesn't matter what kind of group I'm speaking to. If I'm speaking to high school students, I'm speaking to a corporate audience, I'm speaking to sponsors and donors and executive directors and board members. If it's going to be anything that I'm talking about on this topic, it's going to be asked questions because it doesn't really matter where you're at. So you need to ask them. It comes back to your efficiency. (laughs) Well, it's making valuable of time. How How many times have you been in situations, and you probably witnessed it over the years, you get into a meeting, there's questions left on the table. People leave, and, and only hours them. later, people are asking those same questions that yeah. weren't asked in the room when the prime time was there. Yeah. And so that's not efficiency, right? We see that happen a lot. Sometimes I, I call that a make work project. They almost do it on purpose, but that's my opinion. So where do people find you? I know you're a master of Twitter. Oh, no, I'm not a master of Twitter. I only joined last September. Shh. So you're 31. You're not allowed to say that. You're supposed to be on everything. Isn't that how it works? No, I don't even have Instagram. I know we went through this maybe, already. Maybe I should. Yeah. Um, I feel like you could have quite the presence out there. I really do. I, I think. don't know. I don't really think people want to. I don't know. <laughs> go go back to that piece where you talked about um, when you were nominated for two awards. A lot of time we don't look at... A See, I don't you, like you, talking about... like To me, that comes across as, oh, look at her. She's talking you, about herself. Like, you, I don't... You spend your time looking out. Because you're always looking for the challenges, you're looking for the you're looking for things to make a difference in, you're looking to help, you're looking to impact, which is fantastic. The world needs so much of that. People get very introverted very too easily. And they're spending their time on their social media, always looking for people, how they're rating them, how they're reviewing them, how how the impact. They're trying to measure what they're accomplishing. You don't spend your time on that. You spend your time on making an impact, and you only find the surprises when someone tells you after the fact of the impact you laid. You don't go looking for it. Hence why you, you shared how blown away you were with the two awards you were nominated for. Okay, you touche. You were not, you're not looking for it. No. But often the people who aren't looking for it are making some of the biggest impacts available. And I think you have so much to offer to a lot of people that I definitely strongly encourage you to, to, to put a bit bigger of a presence out there for social media. I think you will be, one, I think we'll all be serviced by having you out there a little more predominantly as a, as a valuable resource and mentor. 
I mean, those that have had the opportunity to be mentored by you are just extremely lucky. And I think many, many people can benefit from that. So I'm going to encourage you to get yourself out there more than you already are. But I know you're out there with Twitter, so we can find you on Twitter. I know we can get you out there with the skills Ontario alumni have a Twitter account, do they not? Uh, no, we don't currently have a Twitter account. Um, Where are they? Pretty much right now, I do the Twittering. Twittering? Tweet? I don't even know how to say that I properly. think it's tweeting. <laughs> tweeting? Are you going to edit that? <laughs> 100%. Yeah. It's the opening. <laughs> oh. Uh, so the Skills Ontario Alumni Association doesn't currently have its own pages. We run through the Skills Ontario pages. That's how that works. Yeah. So I use my personal Twitter account strictly for skills stuff. And when I say skills stuff, I don't mean just Skills Ontario or Skills Canada, but for trades advocacy in general. So on my Twitter account, I don't use it for social or personal. It is strictly for, I'm going to call it my trades advocacy and volunteerism, um, where I use, let's say my Facebook account for all of the other things. Yeah. But, uh, what, what, what is it? What's your Twitter? Cause this is where people have to check you out and oh. to at least start the following. What is it? I am at Jen with two N's double underscore green. Sounds original. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's what you get when you join Twitter late, folks. It's, it's the double <laughs> underscore that people don't see because it just looks like one underscore and then you can't find me, so it's the double underscore. Yeah. Well, the, the youth today understand the struggle when they join social media and the, what they have to take for names yeah. because the people who joined it 10 years ago got to have their name. Yeah. And that's long, long, long gone now. So yeah, no, but uh, but not the uh, the association has a LinkedIn group that you can join, and you can actually join the association through the website. Uh, it's just as simple as a form, and you can get on from there. And then there's newsletters, um, and then yeah, I tweet out a lot of stuff personally for the association, which then in turn uh, the skills member organizations retweet, and so do a lot of partners and sponsors of the association. And just random, general, lots of other tradespeople I'm connected with and Which associations. Is a, a lot. Coming up, you are at Skills Canada, the Nationals? Correct. I fly out on the 3rd, and the competition starts on the 4th. So definitely check out Twitter for that. You'll see her there, I'm sure. But if she'll be in some feed somewhere, speaking to someone somewhere, for sure. <laughs> so check that out for sure. And uh, I can't thank you enough. This was absolutely fantastic. You opened up, and I really, really appreciate it. And there's so, so much value that you shared today that I look forward to you getting a chance to listen to this objectively. I'm scared to listen to it. <laughs> no, I think, I think you'll be you'll be pleasantly surprised. And I think sharing share it with those around you, I think they will be, uh, give them a really neat perspective and snapshot into what you have done, where you feel your heart is and what you're accomplishing. And I think it's, uh, you did some really cool stuff here today. I really, really appreciate it. And I feel very, very fortunate to have captured it in audio. I am super happy to do this for you. I love being able, like I said, like this helps you but at the same time it also helps message go out further so multiple people impacted we've talked about that's what it's about right giving everyone yeah. an opportunity to dig in and ask questions and, and hopefully people will reach out and ask you questions because there's no way i'm answering questions for you they're <laughs> way too complicated like so. what i what i love about it is that even if it's just one small aspect that someone heard about something if it's just that one small thing that impacted somebody then that's a goal accomplished. That is a goal achieved. It is one small aspect of someone's life or their day or even just a thought. Just that one small thing and that's all it takes. So many taglines for this episode. Okay, <laughs> anyways. Thank- Hashtag questions. Yes. Well, Jen, again, thank you so much. Thank you everyone who tuned in and listened and we will catch you next time on Accidental Apprentice Podcast. Thank you. Thank you.